Hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Hey, do me a favor. Take your Bibles. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. If you need a Bible, there's going to be ushers coming down the rows. Just raise your hand. Um, ask them for a copy of God's Word. We're going to be talking about God's Word this morning, so it would kind of make sense for you to have a copy in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take this from us as a gift. You can keep it. But um, 2 Timothy 3, kind of two-thirds of the way through the New Testament, near the end of the New Testament, if you're looking for it. it, it it's interesting. Um, I was thinking this week that the church that we planted 12, 13 years ago that Chris, Calvin, and I planted um, is really, really different than the church that we currently pastor. And it's interesting, if you were to meet with, had met with me or had coffee with me 12, 13 years ago, and I was telling you about our church, here's what I would have told you. Man, it, it, it's awesome. Here's one of the cool things about our church. We share space with the ministry. We, we, we lease space from international aid. We meet in their building. It's really efficient. And we don't have to deal with the nightmare of owning our own building. How awesome is that? And... Uh, this morning I will finish preaching here and I will jump in my car and go to another campus and we planted two churches and they all have their own campuses and um, we had a staff retreat this week. I would have told you 12, 13 years ago, hey, really small staff, man. We want to keep this thing really small, really tight. It's a little different today. It's a bigger staff. It's a bigger church than we ever envisioned when we planted. So in many ways, the way that we do ministry has really changed and adapted over 12, 13 years. The convictions, the foundations, the things that we hold dear have not. We're, we're in a series right now, just a quick three-week series, going back over and reminding us, these are the distinctives of harvest. These are the things that we stand for. And it's caught up in our mission statement, which is lift up, hold high, love well. Cal last week taught on worship, the idea of lifting high the name of Jesus Christ in worship. That's something that we do when we gather to worship. We just don't sing. We just don't hear God's word. We just don't show up at church to show up at church. We, we actually come and we engage in worship like we like Jesus, like he's our king, like he's our savior. Cal last week said the way that we worship isn't just encompassed when we gather on the weekends. We constantly live our lives fully aware of the presence that we are living in community in the presence of our Savior and our King. He's always there. He's watching. We are living our lives for Him. This week I look at this idea of holding high the Word of God and though Again, the way we do ministry has changed. I, I, I think back of when we moved into this building. Some of you are here, you would remember. But the first thing that we did when we came into this uh, building, we began to demolish some of the things that were here. We came in, we took all the pews out of this room, we ripped the carpet out. And, and what was the next thing we do? Who remembers? Scripture. Up and down the runways. Anywhere there's carpet in this room, if you were to pull back that carpet, you would find Scripture. Where, where I stand every week, I'm standing on written scripture. Now, that might be symbolic in some ways, but in other ways, it was really, really important to us. We wanted to fill this place with scripture. If you went into the cafe, when I say cafe, I mean donut room, just so you know where we're at. That room, okay, filled with scripture. Pulled the carpet out of there, writing scripture. The foyer, what used to be the high school room upstairs, the junior high room, all of these rooms writing scripture because one of the values, one of the convictions that we have always had is 
that this is going to be a church that holds high the Word of God. We don't worship the Bible, but we sure worship the God of the Bible. And that God wrote a book. He chose to reveal himself through God's Word. And so this morning, the big idea is simply this. At some point, you have to decide who or what you trust. And I'm taking you to a foundational verse in the New Testament that talks about God's Word, what it is, how it's different from any other book that's ever been written. It says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, I hope you found your way there. It says this, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what Paul has done there, it's kind of interesting in that first phrase, all scripture is inspired by God. This translation says it's breathed out by God. Some translations say God breathed. What Paul does is he uses a Greek word that's not used anywhere else in the Bible. It's not used anywhere else in ancient Greek literature. This is the only place that it's used. He made up his own word. He smushed two words together, God and breathed. Scripture is God breathed. How much of scripture is God breathed? All of it. A hundred percent of it is God breathed. It's interesting. Peter will say in 1 Peter 1.20, we'll have this verse on the screen hopefully. It says, know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter says all scripture is inspired or God breathed. Peter says the opposite. How much of scripture is by man's own imagination. None of it. None of it. So you take those two and every part of Scripture is profitable. Now, some have argued that when Paul was writing, he was only referring to the Old Testament Scriptures because that was all that was collected, that was all that was bound. And he says, that's a statement about the Old Testament, but not the New Testament. I would disagree and Scripture disagrees with that conclusion. You would find it interesting that in John 12, verse 49, these are the words of Jesus. And Jesus says this, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. There, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus, even in his earthly ministry, was saying, what I'm doing is I'm communicating what God has told me to communicate. Peter will comment on Paul's writings. He'll say, hey, Paul is writing Scripture. As Paul writes the books of the New Testament, he is fully aware that it is inspired writing that he is playing a part in. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit to the church in Thessalonica. He says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God. As the disciple John is writing the book of Revelation, he starts the book by saying, this isn't my revelation, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And later in chapter 1, he says that Jesus comes to him and says, write these things down. This is the inspired word of God. The word of God is authentic. It is authentic. Well, so here's what I've told you so far. The Bible itself declares that it is God's word. It is self-affirming that it is God's word. Some would argue, well, that's circular reasoning. If the Bible is giving witness to itself that it is God's word, isn't that just circular? Well, are there any external proofs that the Bible is God's word? Yeah, there's plenty of them. Let me run you through a quick list. 
First of all, in its construction. The Bible is unique in that it is a collection of books written by 35 to 40 different authors over a period greater than 1,500 years. And if you study the different authors, some of them were kings, some of them were slaves, some of them were prophets, some of them were murderers, some of them were rich, some of them were poor. 40 different authors compiling 66 books over over 1,500 years, and yet you have a consistency of theme, a consistency of message. You have one writer building upon the other authors. When you consider the longevity of the Bible, there's no other book in human history that has been banned, burned, destroyed, and persecuted like the Bible. No no other book has seen so many martyrs die for having it in their possession. It's interesting, my my father-in-law, he passed away in 1999, but before he passed away, he had basically developed a Bible collection that at the time of his death was probably the largest collection of biblical antiquities in private hands. And um, of all of the pieces that he had, he had first editions of basically every printed Bible. He had manuscripts dating back Old Testament scrolls on vellum, this huge collection. But the piece that was for sure most precious to him and is my favorite in the whole collection is a copy of Matthew Henry's Bible. It was printed in 1537. And and what makes this copy of Matthew's Bible so unique is that if you were to look at it, every page is stained with blood. Every page. And and the the lore, the story behind this Bible was that there was a time in the 1600s where you would be murdered for having possession of God's Word. And if you were found holding a copy of God's Word, uh, you could be burnt at the stake. You would be brought out in front of the town square. You would be burned. You would be hanged, whatever their method might be. And the story goes that this Bible was held by a Christian who valued it and he was caught with the Bible and in the process of putting him to death and somehow the Bible was lost in the chaos. It was captured from the fire. Somebody grabbed it because it had such value. But if you look at the Bible, every page is stained. It's been tested, human blood, by the blood of a martyr. No other book can give that as part of its legacy. And that's not something that happened back then. You understand that's something that's happening right now as we meet this morning in places like like Afghanistan, in places like the Sudan, in Nepal, in India, in China. While we meet this morning in pure safety with racks of Bibles in the back of the room, there are men that are going to be arrested, men and women that are going to be beaten, imprisoned, and maybe murdered for the mere possession of God's Word. No other book can tell that story. The Bible is the only book I know that has such a testimony of transformed lives for over 2,000 years. People will say, that is the book that changed my life. That is the book that changed my life. That is the book that has completely changed me. Anybody in this room, can, would you say that? Archaeology, prophecy, confirms that the Bible is an extraordinary work, not of human hands, but it is actually God-breathed. I'll just give you one example. A hundred years ago, back in 1920s, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what's interesting in discovering the Dead Sea Scrolls is biblical criticism had taken such a hold in our country that major universities, Yale and Harvard, were saying, hey, the Bible isn't what it claims to be. 
And they were looking at books like Daniel and the book of Isaiah. Daniel was so accurate in its predictions of the kingdoms that were going to follow Daniel's time. Daniel lived during the Babylonian and Medes and Persians, but he had written about what was to follow those two kingdoms. And it played out in history so accurately, they said there's no way in the world Daniel wrote those books that had to be written after the time of Christ. Same thing was said about the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah's prophecy, particularly Isaiah 53, was so accurate about the way that our Savior would die someday on a cross for our sins that they said it had to be written after the fact. There's no way in the world that could have been written by Isaiah. And then they find this library, the Dead Sea Scrolls, written centuries before Jesus came to earth. And, and guess what they find? The book of Daniel. It's there. They find the whole book of Isaiah. It's contained in the, what they call the Isaiah scroll. It's all there. Accurately predicting what they said. There's no way in the world the prophet could have known. It's interesting. I think we're going to take another trip to Israel, God willing, in 2025. Some of you went this year. We went before COVID. Every one of these trips, we go to somewhat different places. Do you know why? Because in the two years, in the five years, they're always digging up something new that has biblical significance. How nice is it to know that God's word is so accurate that every time an archaeologist sticks his shovel in the dirt, he's only confirming what God's word says. I can't wait. We're going to be in the Old Testament after this series. We're going to be studying the, the, the life of Elijah. And somewhere near the end of October, November, I'm going to preach from 1 Kings 21. And it is a story that people said there's no way that can be true. Because the city that it describes, the circumstance that it describes, never existed right up until they found it 20 years ago. God's word is authentic. It's also accurate. Some will ask, can I trust the Bible that I read? So many centuries of scribes dictating, so many different translations. Can I really trust the word of God that I hold? Here's what I would just say in summary. God's really, really pleased with the Bible you have in your hands today. God is not only involved in the inspiration of his word, but he has been involved in the preservation of his word. Just to give you an idea so you have some level of confidence in God's word, if you look at other manuscripts of antiquity and compare them to the Bible, it actually becomes comical. Plato wrote um, the Republic. He wrote his dialogues. Do you know how many copies of Plato's work exist today? Seven. The earliest manuscript we have of what Plato wrote was 1,200 years after he died. So we've got seven manuscripts of the work of Plato 1,200-year gap between when he died and when the oldest manuscript existed. Can I just say, we don't have a clue what Plato really said. If you look at Homer and his Iliad, most, um, most manuscripts outside the Bible of any book of antiquity, there's 643 in existence. Some of them just fragments, some of them partial, some of them complete. The oldest manuscript as it relates to Homer's Iliad there's a 500-year gap between his death and that earliest manuscript. Now, let's just take the New Testament by comparison. Seven manuscripts, 643 manuscripts. The New Testament has 25,000 25, manuscripts written in three different languages, some of them dating back to within 50 to 100 years of when Christ actually walked on this earth. 
But you can walk into most secular college classrooms today. Nobody's going to question Homer's Iliad. Nobody's going to question the work of Plato's. But they're going to say, no, the Bible isn't reliable. Are you kidding me? I don't have a lot of patience for that. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and the scroll of Isaiah, it was over a thousand years older than any version of Isaiah that they had had prior to that discovery. So it was going to be interesting for the archaeologists and the theologians to go, how much has it changed? Just talking Isaiah 53, the passage about Christ and his suffering on the cross. There's 166 words in Isaiah 53. There are 17 letters in question. 17 letters or punctuation marks. It's kind of like comparing Old English to current English. The, the way we spelled words had changed in the thousand years. None of it had to do with theology or what the text was communicating. When you boil it all down, 166 words, today there are three letters that are in question, which have nothing to do with the theology or the meaning of the text. The Bible that you hold in front of you is accurate. Isaiah 40, verse 8. And if I remember correctly, that's written right here under the carpet. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So the Bible is authentic, it is accurate, it is also authoritative. If the Bible is what it claims to be, if it is God-breathed, if it is not the work of man but it is of God, could I make the argument? Well, then we should pay attention, wouldn't you think? It should carry weight in the way that we operate. It should be an authority. More on that later. That's what the Bible is. Here's what it does. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I won't take the time to define each of those words. I think it's fairly self-evident. It's proven wisdom. It's something for us to measure the way that we're thinking against the standard of God's word, and it corrects us. It instructs, it completes, it equips. It's interesting, if I go back to the Old Testament to Psalm, Psalm 1, David says this. He says, here is a man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then it describes that man this way. It says he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Hey, anybody in the, in the room need some reviving of soul? God's word can do that. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I could go on, I'll jump to verse 10. It says, it's to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey or the drippings of a honeycomb. And it goes on, moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So Psalm 1, by keeping God's word, you are, everything you do will prosper. There is great reward. Well, what does that mean to prosper, to receive a great reward? Is that financial? Is that good health? Is that a life without conflict? Whatever he does, he prospers. 
y'all are going to have a really hard time screwing up my weekend this weekend because last night during baptisms, I stood in a tank with my son and we baptized my grandson. God's word promises blessing. So, Paul anchors Timothy, his protege. He has been mentoring Timothy. Timothy is a pastor at Ephesus. That is a church that Paul has planted, but then he's left it, and he continues to write first the book of Ephesians, then 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy back to his mentor, Timothy. The question isn't what Paul says about God's word. That is clear. The better question is why is he saying it in 2 Timothy 3? This is his last letter to Timothy. Paul's writing from prison. He is on death row. He is about to be executed. So what we are listening to is his last words. Last words are important. You you choose them carefully. I remember uh, when my father passed away, he died of pancreatic cancer. It was nine weeks from diagnosis to death. And, and I would go visit him. I would sit with him for an hour or two. And, and he was in a lot of pain. Sometimes he was real quiet. Some of those visits were very, very non-eventful. And then I'd go, hey, Dad, I got to go. Good to see you. I'll try to come back next week. And in those, as I'd get up to leave, then all of a sudden he'd look at me. And all of a sudden he'd get focused. And he'd be like, hey, there's something I got to tell you. And I listened to those words because they were important. Last words are important. Paul is giving Timothy his last words. He's telling him, Hey, these are the things that are important. Why does he do it? Well, look what he says at the beginning of 2 Timothy 3. Look what precedes this declaration on God's word. Second point in the notes is this, the course of culture, it spirals. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Well, why will things get difficult? What, what is going to change? What's going to happen in the world that creates this difficulty? For verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Man, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Living in a culture like that, how crazy would that be? (laughs) Where everyone's their own authority? Where, where everybody has the right to decide for themselves what is right or wrong, that all you get to do as you talk to other people is affirm their choices no matter how absurd, that the main things that that society would value would be pleasure, would be money, that people would be arrogant, that they would not submit to authority. That would be nuts. Are we there yet? It's interesting. If you went back to the Old Testament, to the book of Judges, it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Another way of saying kind of what he just said in 2 Timothy 3. And one of the things that I love about God's word, it's alive. It's not some old ancient manuscript that sits on a shelf. It doesn't just describe what did happen or what will happen in the case of 2 Timothy 3. It describes what always happens. Because it has the ability to diagnose the condition of our hearts. And be it our hearts personally or a culture collectively that wanders away from God, it always leads to this same place. And what Timothy is being told by Paul, the guy who's mentored him, the guy that's poured his life into him, is this. He's saying, hang on, 
Hold tight to God's word. What is the thing that's going to keep you from drifting, from falling away? It's God's word. He goes on in verse 5, he says this, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Don't go where culture is going to drift. It's interesting, 30 years ago, Chris and I have been married about 10 years. We took a vacation down to the Cayman Islands. We went out on this kind of janky snorkeling adventure. And, and the guy took us outside the barrier reef to where the water was a little bit deeper. He didn't even take us in a boat. It was more like a floating box. I think we sat in folding chairs, little Evinrood engine. I'm like, what are we doing? And he tells us to jump into the water. And then when we're in the water, he goes, listen, I'm going to go drive three quarters of a mile away. I've put you in a current. Just kind of relax. You'll drift down. You'll get to me in about an hour. It's like, all right. <laughs> and, and, and as we're doing this, it was interesting because what he said was true. We're just all of a sudden drifting along. And, and what we were looking down at, it was absolutely beautiful. A little bit deeper water, a little bit bigger fish. And about halfway through the drift, all of a sudden, we call it... If you're from Jamaica, Jamaica, Kamanian, I think that's what you, Kamaniac, whatever you'd call this guy, okay? He comes back in his floating box and he's like, get in, get in, get in. And this is where Kristen and my, our memory differs. <laughs> she says that what he said is, get in quickly, there's a whale shark. I only heard shark. <laughs> so, so I basically walk across the water, jump back into the box, and then I find out he's not taking us away from the fish. He's taking us to the fish. Because his buddy in another floating box with another group of victims is, is with this whale shark. And that guy's actually diving with the thing. He's holding onto its dorsal fin. It's going up and down, up and down. It was incredible. But, but all of this, we ended up getting in way later than we were supposed to. So we're coming in just about when it's at last light. It's after sunset. His floating box has no lights. I'm just like, get us in. And we're cutting through the inlet that gets us inside the barrier reef. And someone in our box looks and goes, hey, what's that over there? And in the distance, we could barely see it in the low light. There was a guy clinging to a buoy. Open water. So we took the boat box over there. The guy was so disorientated when we got there. He was so exhausted that he couldn't even let go of the buoy to get to the boat. Someone jumps in, kind of helped him. By the time he got onto the boat, he was disorientated. He was confused. He was completely exhausted. He was falling out of his speedo. My wife remembered that. And um, <laughs> it was a mess. He was French. We couldn't communicate with him. We honestly don't know what happened. We eventually found the boat when we went back into the harbor that he was missing from. They were like, Dad, what happened to you? I think they were killing him. Who knows? <laughs> but that's the picture in my mind. That's the message that Paul in his last communication from Timothy is trying to drive. Hold on to God's word. Don't get caught in the current. Don't let the ups and downs of the waves of life overwhelm you. This is the thing you've got to hold on to. He didn't preach this the statement that he makes about the authority and the importance of Scripture in a vacuum. He was contrasting it to where the culture was going, which means it's good for us to hear as well. Would you agree? The course of culture, it spirals. The plea to the pastor is to preach. Look where he goes at the start of chapter 4. 
Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearance in his kingdom. What does he tell him to do? Preach the word. Here's what Paul has just done. He's called out the big dogs. He's saying, in the presence of Jesus, he's going to judge you. This is what I need you to focus on. This needs to be the priority in your ministry. Preach the word. In season, out of season, any opportunity you get, you preach the word. And I'm just going to tell you something. As a church, there is always the tendency to drift towards good things that aren't the best things. There are a lot of things that pastors can give their lives to. There are a lot of things, good things, that a church can focus on. We can all be about community betterment. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's just not the best thing. The best thing is preaching the word. I can stand up here week after week, and we can talk about social reform. We can talk about political reform. We can give ourselves to those things. Those aren't bad things. They're not the best thing. The best thing is preach the word. And I'm not just talking about what I'm doing now. Please don't make that mistake. I'm talking about every pastor on our staff. The priority of their ministry is to preach the word. Brian Smoots, when he's in soul care, guess what he's doing? Preaching the word, applying the word of God to the particulars of somebody's life. Today, in our children's ministry, tonight in our junior high and high school ministries, Joe, Jordan, the teachers in those children's ministries, preach the word. God's word is what can transform a country and a community, and it's done by one life at a time being transformed by the power of the gospel. That's what we're called to convey. We should be asking ourselves constantly the question. So you know, small groups, we're just not hanging out eating chips. You know that, right? Bumbling on about the troubles and struggles of our lives. We're there so that others can say, hey, what does God's word say about that? Hey, help me answer that. What does God's word say about that? Constantly preaching the word of God, the pastors, the staff, the small group leaders. This is our calling because it's God's word. It's God breathed. It's what holds us. It's what anchors us in a world gone crazy. So the plea to the pastors to preach the word, what's the response of the people? It's simply one word. It's obedience. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, he said, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I would argue that verse 2 implies conflict. Not everybody is going to like it when you preach the word. Back in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, in instructing Timothy, he's saying, Hey, listen, hold on to the word, follow my example. And then he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. A culture gone crazy is not going to be real accepting to the truths of God's word. We get that, right? But he says, in spite of the conflict, preach the word. And then he says in verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Uh, that happens every day. A culture that is focused on pleasure. A culture that is saying, I will submit to no authority. A culture that is saying, nobody has the right to tell me what to do. 
That culture will gravitate to teachers who say, I'll condone your poor choices. Happens every day. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So the response of the people, are you going to accumulate teachers? Are you going to just have ears that will only listen to the things that you believe rather than what God's word says? Is that the choice that you're going to make or are you going to stand firm on God's word? See, every one of us comes to a crossroad. The big idea, at some point, you got to decide who or what you're going to trust. What, what will be your authority? What is your best source of truth? Who is your king? Who are you going to serve? Who will you obey? And by the way, mentally, you can agree or disagree. You can affirm what I'm saying, but it has much more to do with how you live than what you think. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Can I just say something? As I've gotten older, I don't like mirrors. Not a big fan. Don't look at them very often. Don't like what I see. Things are shifting. But here's the problem. If I were to look at myself in the mirror, which I try to avoid, I'm faced with a decision. Am I going to fix what I see? Like, I can spend all next year. I can buff up like Steve Furtick. I can do it. I can be one of these really buff pastors. Like, I can fix what's wrong, or I can do something else. I can just quit looking in the mirror. <laughs> problem goes away. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, be no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. So that's the crossroads that we're confronted with. What are we going to do with the word of God? If it's actually God breathed, are we going to let it be an authority? Are we going to incorporate what it says into our lives? Are we going to yield? And the promise, if you do, is that in all things you do, you will prosper. You will be blessed. See, that's what we're going for as your pastors. We want the best for you, and we don't know how to get you there if you won't submit to the word of God. And I'm going to be really, really clear on something here today. Um, please hear me. For some of you, this becomes really practical in this moment because what the word of God for some of you in this room is telling you to do is this morning, right now, is when you need to be baptized. It's that clear in Scripture. It's not just what you believe. It's not just what you say or think that you're going to do. It's what you're actually willing to do. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, the first step in your walk with Christ, the first step that we are asked to do as a follower of Jesus Christ in obedience to our King is to be baptized. You're like, can you put some Scripture with that? Yeah, I can. Acts 2.41 in the early church. So those who received his words were baptized. Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. 
Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her, speaking of Lydia, her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized. Acts 18, 8, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, get the order, believed and were baptized. The call of the church is to make disciples. We're to preach the good news of the gospel, making disciples. And then what are we commanded to do? Baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing. Baptism doesn't save you. Saved people get baptized. Baptism is only an outward expression of an inward transformation, a decision that you have made that Jesus is your Lord and is your King. It is a command. It is found over and over throughout Scripture. The choice is, will you do what God's Word says? Now, 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 some of you, you're like, well, I was baptized as an infant. Please hear me. That means that you had parents who loved you, cared about you, and wanted to see God do a work in your life that eventually someday you would be saved. That's not a bad thing, but it's not this thing. This isn't a choice that your mom and dad make for you. This is a choice that you make in response to what God has already done in your life, that he saved you. It is a public pronouncement of identity with Jesus Christ. At the start of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, he was baptized. Why? He hadn't sinned. He didn't need to be cleansed. He was identifying with us as sinners. And in the same way, our our baptism today identifies that Jesus is our king. This is different than infant baptism. Some of you are like, "Well, well, David, you're being pushy. Thank you. That's my job. Preach the word. Some of you are like, well, I, 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 I need to pray about this. Uh, no, you don't. No, you do not. When you have to pray about responding in obedience, if you go home and tell your kid to take the garbage out and the kid looks at you and goes, I'll pray about it, how's that go? <laughs> it's not great. God's calling us to be obedient. Some of you are like, I don't know how this works. Guess what? There's not that much to know. If you trusted in Jesus Christ for your Savior, if you've asked for forgiveness of sins, you're called to be baptized. Right now, we have uh, elders, we have pastors waiting downstairs. They'll answer any question that you have. You say, well, I came, I'm not prepared. Uh, We've done this before, we're prepared. We've got everything that you need. I promise. You will come out of the tank looking way better than you currently do. We've thought of everything. There's nothing that you need to do to prepare. There's nothing that you need to do or need to know. It's this simple. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. It's a step of obedience. He's called you to do that. The only question is, will you do it? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite people to come forward right now. We're going to play two songs. Don't wait till the end of the second song. Please don't. Come forward right away. Kristen, my wife, is standing right there. It's very simple. When you hear the music play, you walk forward in obedience to what God has called you to do. She will usher you downstairs. There's people waiting for you. They'll give you um, the T-shirts, the stuff that you need to wear. They'll walk through. They'll answer any questions. They'll pray with you. It's not complicated. It's just obedience. God's word is precious. 
There's a God, there's a king who has communicated his will for us. Will we follow? Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for the last words of Paul where he just gives us something to cling to, to hold on to. And Father, we live in difficult times. But you are king, you are Lord, you can be trusted, your word is true. You have not abandoned us, you have not forsaken us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your unconditional love. Father, give us the courage to obey. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.